Thank you for listening to the Missio Day Uptown Podcast. We are a church committed to our neighborhood, seeking to love and serve our beautifully unique community as we join God as he makes all things new. To learn more about us, visit mduptown.com. Okay, so the first time that Jamie and my wife, my Jamie, my wife, and I, all right, let me pray again, Lord. <laughs> okay, the first time Jamie, my wife, and I, <laughs> COVID, man. Um, the, the first time we held hands, come on, let me tell this, this is fun, um, was in 2011, okay, it's 2011. I'm a sophomore in college. She's a freshman. Uh, we had sort of been hanging out a little bit, but had not pursued each other. And so we're at a friend's house. It's 2011. We're sitting next to each other. And we are watching a romantic movie called Fight Club. <laughs> yes. Oh, it was, be- it, was, it was a beautiful moment. Of course. It, yeah, we, we were just like, you know, when some things were, it was just like, all right, we got to hold hands. Uh, now, be, not being, or excuse me, despite not being able to talk about Fight Club, I am going to say a few things about it, right? To remind you of the plot, thank you, one of you has seen the movie apparently. Um, Edward Norton's character, uh, he's the one on my left, he stays nameless throughout the movie. We'll call him the narrator. Uh, he's a well-off business professional, right? Everything in his life seems perfect. He has the perfect condo, the perfect furniture, the perfect amount of comfort, and yet he is perfectly empty, right? He, ju- he actually is so empty, feels so this l- level of emptiness, that he jumps from support group to support group for diseases he doesn't have and problems he doesn't, doesn't have either, right? It's like he'll be in a part of a cancer support group or a part of a Alcoholics Anonymous, things that he does not have and does not struggle with, right? He doesn't really, he, he does this though because he doesn't really realize like why he is empty. He isn't sure until, of course, he meets Brad Pitt's character, the one in the red jacket, Tyler Durden. Now, Tyler Durden is the most, impor- or most important and the most interesting man that our main character has ever met. He's a soap salesman who seems to have everything figured out, including our main character, because in a few brief moments on an airplane, Durden assesses the narrator's issue as being consumed by consumerism, an empty pursuit, right? Now... Our narrator is unsure of what to do with this information, so he gets off the plane, he goes home to his perfect condo and his perfect furniture, only to find out that the condo has exploded. <laughs> and so everything he has, yeah, uh, has, has burnt up, he has nothing left. Unsure of what to do, he calls Tyler Durden, right? And so we have this sort of progression where Tyler then convinces him to renounce everything that he had already, uh, or that he had given his life over to, uh, he, he moves into sort of this rundown house, and they start a group called Fight Club, right? Now, Fight Club is a cult for young men who are also searching for meaning and purpose in life and are drawn to renouncing the ways of society and what, what it means to be successful. They give up consumerism, and they take up Fight Club. Now, I'm not going to give you any... If you haven't seen this movie, I probably should spoil it just because that's on you, but I won't. There's some good stuff that I haven't spoiled. But why do I bring up Fight Club? See, I think each and every one of us, a lot like our narrator, is being formed by outside factors in our life, right? 
The narrator's entire spiral in the, in the movie is a realization of this point, that he is being formed by things that he does not like and things that are meaningless, and he tries to correct it. Now, he tries to correct it in a pretty poor way, right? Like, beating each other up and starting a fight club is probably not the way to, like, fix your, your fixation on consumerism, but he, he does become more intentional about his own formation, right? And the Christian way, I think, to put this, not to put Fight Club, but to put our formation, to be intentional about our formation, is discipleship, right? That we are disciples of someone or something at all times in our lives, regardless of whether or not we realize that we are a disciple of someone or something, right? And so we want to be more intentional about that discipleship. Who or what are we being formed by? And I will say, I think in a lot of my recent sermons, I have explored this idea of formation in different words, right? Uh, we have explored idolatry and the ways we make created more important than the creator, and then we become like them, right? That's formation. We have explored the idea of making God in our image and the ways in which that forms us, right? So this morning, I want to continue to look at our formation, and I want to do so by looking at what is widely called the Great Commission, right? Matthew 28 through 18 through 20, to explore what a life looks like that is intentional about its formation, namely formation by God via other people through discipleship. Okay, why is discipleship important to talk about? I think outside of being cognizant of the fact that we are being discipled by someone or something, that we want to be, uh, be more intentional about that, the Bible, the Word, also confirms that discipleship is important. In the New Testament, the word Christian is used, actually, I don't remember, it's like two or three total times, right? But the word discipleship, the, the word disciple is used 269 times in the New Testament, right? Being a word that is a marker of an identity, it is incredibly important for us then to understand what does it mean to be a disciple and what does it mean to help others be disciples, right? So then what better text than Matthew 28? Uh, we, read, we did read a decent amount of Matthew 28, despite me not telling Girl Dean how much to read. Appreciate you. Um, but I really want to focus on 18 through 20, again, called the Great Commission. This passage is the Great Commission, and I know a lot of you know this, but stick with me. It's the Great Commission because it's Jesus commissioning or authorizing his disciples to carry out the work of doing something. And that something is, of course, making disciples, Right? Now, you might be like, wait, Jimmy, it's not just making disciples, though. He says, like, I have authority, go and make disciples, baptize people, and teach, right? Thank you. Voice of public opinion, I'm glad you brought that up. So, we, I think we, how do I say this? Our English translations do not do justice to the verbs um, that this passage uses. And so, we want to explore that. I want to explore that a little bit with you this morning. Uh, let's go ahead and look at what I mean. So if you trim off a little bit here, uh, we have sort of the main idea of the passage. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of Son and of Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have observed. Originally, like I said, it sounds like a list of things to do, right? We're going to go, we're going to make disciples, we're going to baptize, and we're going to teach. But when it, you look a little bit closer at the verb tenses used in the passage, it's actually a little bit closer to this. So I took some liberties to do a little bit of a different translation. As you are going to the nations, make disciples by baptizing them and by teaching them. 
So why is this important? What is the true command here? The only command here is to do what? Make disciples, right. Yes, you got it. Good job. Um, So what the going, the baptizing, the teaching, what do they do for us in this sentence? They modify make disciples, right? In other words, they describe how the disciples were to make disciples themselves, right? It's like if I'm coaching a basketball team, and I'm, I'm like, we're going to win by scoring, defending, and rebounding, right? What is the goal to win? How are we going to do it? By scoring, by defending, by rebounding. So in the same way, we make disciples by going, by baptizing, and by teaching, right? So next week, I'm really going to dive into the, uh, the going aspect of this and why making disciples is important. So this, this morning, though, I really want to focus in on what it looks like to be a disciple uh, by looking at the baptizing and the teaching. In other words, yes, we're told to go and make disciples, but we ourselves are also disciples, right? So what can we garner from the Great Commission about our identity as disciples? Now, We've talked a lot about identity, I feel like, in the last couple of months. In Ephesians, we really dug into it, uh, and we're just going to continue to do it this morning. My big thing, like, you guys are probably going to hear this a ton from me, so if you don't like talking about our identity in Christ, I apologize. Like, I'm just going to keep talking about it, because it's, it's I think it's just so vitally important, and everything else flows from that, understanding that identity, right? I think identity formation is, as a Christian, is a pretty funny thing. Because all of our identity formation formation exists in the already but not yet paradigm. Already but not yet paradigm. What do I mean? Look at the way the author of Hebrews talks about this idea in Hebrews 10, 14. It says, For by uh, by one sacrifice, Jesus has made perfect forever those who are being made perfect. For by one sacrifice, Jesus has made perfect forever those who are being made perfect. What the heck does that mean? How can Jesus make someone perfect while they are also being made perfect, right? Like if I make a sandwich, it's a sandwich, right? It's not becoming a sandwich. It is a sandwich. So how can Jesus make us perfect while we are still being perfected? Stick with me. Jesus' death on the cross paid what we owed for our sins, right? And then his resurrection in his victory over death, Jesus then endowed us Uh, endowed those who trust in him with a new identity. That new identity, I'm going to tell you over and over, is a daughter or son of God with whom he is well pleased, right? It is the identity of Jesus, the identity of perfection, right? In other words, when God sees us, we are clothed with the life of Jesus, and he sees us as perfect, right? That is our eternal reality now, our assurance And nothing can separate us from the love of God that is found in Jesus because it's not found in who we are or what we do, right? But perfection, as you know, is not our lived reality, right? Or I guess it's not mine. Um, I can tell you that. Because it's not our lived reality, though, we are still growing, still being sanctified, still being perfected, still looking a little bit more like Jesus, Yeah, we have setbacks, but we are being perfected, right? So we are being treated as perfect while we are becoming a little bit more perfect. Now, it's not, again, it's not going to ever look perfect on this side of eternity, but that is a reality that we are growing in our relationship with Christ and how we look like Jesus, right? Already perfect, but not yet 
perfect, right? And that, I just want to say, like, step back for a minute. That is absurdly gracious of God, is it not? I had a, I, let me tell you this. I had really, really good parents growing up, like really good. I don't know why I was like I was as a kid. Um, actually, this probably won't just surprise you, but I just like broke a lot of things as a kid. Predominantly is by accident and some was on purpose, but I just like broke and lost everything, right? Lamps, ceiling fans, the will of my younger brother, like everything in my path was broken. And yet, in all of that, my parents continued to love me and draw close to me. How much more do we wrong God, right? Break things that he has given us. And yet, how much more does he love me and draw close to me than my parents even do, right? How much do I continue to be his son with whom he is well pleased despite my wronging him? That is God's grace, and it is good, right? Why do I talk about this this morning? Because in my understanding, our identity as a disciple, we need to understand this dynamic. Again, that we are both seen as perfect and not yet perfected. And we see this idea, I think, in the Great Commission in a lot of ways. Where? Well, let's start with the baptizing qualifier, right? We're going to look at baptizing and teaching. Let's go to baptizing. Now, when baptism comes to our head, I think we primarily think of this like, ritual of dunking someone or sprinkling water for some of you in water, right, and then coming back up. And it signifies, it's a metaphor of what is now spiritually true of us once we start to follow Jesus, right? So let's explore a few of those metaphors that we use for baptism. The first one is, is making clean, right? So baptizo really means, the word means to dip repeatedly, to immerse, submerge, so I still think when I hear baptized, I still think of like bone of beef. Like that, and they use the right word because it's like when you baptize your beef sandwich, like you dip it all the way in, right? That is baptized. And, that, and that's the word. That's what it means. But originally it was really used to talk about cleansing, right? To make clean with water, which makes sense then that we use this word to signify what is true of us as a result of us following Jesus, right? We're saying that through the ceremony of baptism, we represent the cleaning that is done when we become followers of Jesus, right? Our slate has been wiped clean. By the blood of Jesus, we have been made white as snow. And so part of making disciples is introducing people to Jesus, constantly reminding of them, and then constantly reminding them of this, right? That they have been made clean by faith. Helping people to preach the gospel to themselves regularly. That's part of baptism, but another idea we don't talk about baptizing uh, is that it also means to overwhelm. It means to overwhelm. Think about it like this. When I baptize a dish in soap water, right, what I'm doing is I put it in the soap water, and it becomes surrounded by the soap water, right? Another way to put that is, I know we don't use it like this, but this is what it means. We become, the, the dish becomes overwhelmed by the soap water, Right? And I think in a metaphorical sense, in the same way, by being baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we are overwhelming people in the Trinity, right? We are surrounding them with God in a lot of ways. And in this overwhelming, we identify with God in a way that inherently changes our identity. Does that make sense, this idea of overwhelming? Okay. So baptizing is a part of making disciples and that it is helping people identify with Christ, right? 
The narrator and Tyler Durden were so effective at building Fight Club because they identified men who no longer wanted to be identified with the culture, right? And they helped to re-identify them, right? They all became Robert Paulson in a lot of ways. No one, okay, no one's seen the movie, cool. Um, that was a little bit of a deep, yeah. Okay, they baptized them in the ideology of Fight Club, right? This work of, identify, uh, of identity formation, it is a continual process because we're so easily drawn back to identifying ourselves in ways that are harmful to us. So that's the idea. Well, actually, let me, let me do this. Let's look at another passage from Hebrews to sort of drive this home and land this plane. Hebrews 3, 12 and 13 says, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily, as long as it is, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by, deceit, by sin's deceitfulness. Right? I stumbled over my words, so maybe I messed it up here, but listen to what this is saying. Discipleship, or in this case, encouraging one another daily, is vital because we remind each other of our identity in Christ, which protects us from lies, right? Sin is deceitful. Protects us from lies that attack this identity, resulting in hardness, right? Are you guys okay if I'm honest for a minute? Okay. All right. Amy said yes, so I'm, I'm going to be. Now, this may be, come as a surprise to many of you, but I am not perfect yet, right? Um, all right, that's all I wanted to be on it. No, I'm just um, I know it's surprising, but it's true. In fact, uh, in this season of becoming one of your pastors, I have felt my imperfection pretty significantly. In fact, it has resulted in a lot of insecurity. Um, I've struggled with some insecurity that has led me to some behavior that sort of protects my reputation. And I'm going to be honest, I know in even telling you guys this and saying this, it makes me almost like feel like, oh, they could see me as weak or like there's, you know, but I, I just want to be honest with you guys. It's been insecurity that I'm not enough for Missio Day Uptown. Insecurity that I wasn't the right choice, that I can't be what this community needs. And I'm going to be honest, it was like particular in like June, it was really, really eating at me. It was eating at me so badly that I knew I had to do something about it because I knew if I left it unchecked, I would start, things, start to do things I didn't want to do. I would lie about some of the things I was doing. I would maybe build myself up, right, in word, trying to overcompensate for how I was feeling. I would compare myself to others and tear them down in order to feel better about myself. And I didn't want that. So what I did is I shared with Chris and a few others that work for Missio Day how I was feeling. And, and I'll tell you guys, like, the overwhelming response was to remind me that my identity is in Jesus, Right? Chris spent time listening to me, but he also spent time correcting the lies that I was believing about myself and what others might think of me, right? And in those moments, Chris, thank you, you have discipled me in a way that has not allowed me to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, right? Our baptism, our continual understanding of our identity in Christ is so vital if we want to grow as disciples of Jesus, right? Okay, so that's baptism. Let's go into teaching, the second qualifier of making disciples. Teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Now, this one is not a metaphor, right? This is pretty straightforward. Um, but how do, what, so what I want to do is spend time, like how does this differentiate from baptizing? If baptizing is the process of entering into a new family, namely as a daughter or son of God, then teaching is the process of resembling the family that you're already a part of, Right? 
I think a lot of ways in which the Christian church can operate, uh, it creates this idea that discipleship maybe ends with conversion or ends with someone becoming a Christian. But evangelism without discipleship, baptizing without teaching, looks good for a church's members or looks good for a church's numbers while having no real impact on people's lives, right? In other words, we have divorced the Great Commission from the Great Commandment, right? A.W. Tozer, who you guys know is my guy, he says it like this, salvation apart from obedience is unknown in the sacred scriptures. Salvation apart from obedience is unknown in sacred scriptures. So, if this is true, we want to grow in how we are obedient to Jesus, right? So what does this look like? I think the way we generally treat, this is going to be a little corny, but stick with me. The way we generally treat our relationship with God is like an app on our phones. I have my relationship with God app. They're in the top right corner, right? Don't look at all my apps. This is my phone. I shouldn't, it's kind of weird. But uh, my family app, my hobby app, right? And I sort of click them when I'm in that area, and things generally don't overlap, right? Like I can't be in two apps at the same time. So it's like my God app and my family app, right? So the way I think about teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded is that we move from treating Jesus as an app and treat him more like the operating system, right? In other words, in what way does Jesus make the other apps operate? If I'm at work, how is Jesus impacting the way I treat my coworkers, the way I do my work, what I talk about around these coworkers, right? How does Jesus impact my marriage, my, my relationship with my kids, my relationship with my parents, right? How does he impact my finances? How do I utilize the things I've been entrusted with, like my home, right? Another way to think about this, so Colossians says that Jesus is supreme, right? And so rightfully so, he should have supremacy in our lives, and so this is how I think we think about this idea. We make a list of things that are important to us, right? Like, I'm going to put Jesus at the top, and then my family, friends, football, work, ice cream, whatever. Whatever your list looks like, right? And we make this list of our priorities and put Jesus at the top. But honestly, I, I don't know if we push back on this enough. Like, I don't think that this is actually the right way to do it. I think that what this does is it leads to a little bit of a false sacred-secular dynamic, where it's like I'm going to spend my Jesus time and I'm going to make sure that I spend at least, like, plur by plurality, plurality's sake, that was really hard to say, most of my time there, right? Like, maybe it's like 30%, that's 20% here, and that's, you know what I'm saying? But I, I just think that we then separate our lives out too much. And so this is the same idea as the operating system, but I think when we talk, when we, um, let me see this, here we go. When the alternative is Jesus being Lord in our lives, and that means hit, him being in priority in each of these areas, right? So if you go to the next slide, Girl Dean, I sort of have, have this where it's just like, okay, Jesus is supreme over my family life. Jesus is supreme over my work life. Jesus is supreme over my hobbies, over my interactions with others, over my families, over, like, fill in the blank, right? Jesus is supreme in each of these areas. He's over each of these areas as opposed to over a big list. Are you with me? Okay. So discipleship, oh, sorry. So <clears throat> I'm wholly convinced by the Bible and by my own experience that the only way for this to continue to take root in my life, for Jesus to become supreme in all of these areas, is to spend meaningful time with other people talking about God and talking about my relationship with him 
where I'm struggling, what's going well, what I'm learning, what lies I might be believing, right? I think personal time is really good, but I think sometimes we're, um, what's the term? Not false narrator. Uh, It's like in the, okay. We, We tell lies to ourselves, right? And we have a hard time um, sort of like understanding where we're struggling. It's like, and then you just list out what's going on in your life to someone else, and they're just like, oh, that's what's going on. And you're like, I'm an idiot. How did I not see that, right? I, I am so convinced that discipleship is the means by which Jesus takes his rightful place on the throne of our lives, and the means of discipleship is other people, right? So if you can't tell, um, I think the American church has severely lacked in its discipleship efforts. And so because of that, we want to develop pathways to help combat that, which is where my next ask, my challenge to you this morning comes in. I've already mentioned this uh, before, and we announced them last week, but in September, we're launching more intentional spaces for discipleship that we are simply called discipleship groups, right? Um, These discipleship groups, let me say this first. I'm going to be honest. I was telling Tiana before, I'm not like a huge salesman. And so I, I struggle with being like, hey, I really want you to do this like thing because I'm not a big fan of like church busyness, right? If I'm being completely honest, I'm not a big fan of like unnecessary activity. I think a lot of times we can have these programs and these things that make us just feel like we're doing a lot, but all it is is busyness and doesn't real, lead to real life change. So I just want you to tell like, say this, like busyness is not our goal in launching things like this. Right? Busyness is not our goal. Life changes. Right? And so what are discipleship groups? They're intentional, multi-generational, self-governed groups of two to four people that meet three to four times a month. That was a lot of words. but um, So what we want is to develop pathways to have intentional groups of people that are meeting like once a week or however often you can meet. Right? We're not setting specific times for groups to meet. Um, And we'll give you, like, prompts and questions to discuss, but we're really, like, as you develop relationships and things like that, we hope that even the groups develop ways in which they're, like, really speaking into each other's lives intentionally, right? That's what we want. So as you get to know each other, our hope is that you really dig in where you need to dig in in order to see Jesus more clearly. And we'll occasionally host nights where it's just like, okay, all the discipleship groups are coming together just to check in on how we're doing, but we won't on, in our regular times, we're not going to determine how you meet, whether it's virtually or in person, when you meet. It's really going to be a little bit more of a self-governed, personal thing, um, and we're just developing the pathway for that to happen, right? So let me share why I'm particularly decided or excited about discipleship groups for our church in particular. I truly think that there aren't many church, urban churches that have the age diversity that we have. And I think that's a beautiful thing. We have brand new believers in the room, and we have, been, we have people that have been walking with Jesus for decades, right? And I, I, get, I brag about you all all the time. I'm just like, man, like the diversity of experience and our relationships with Jesus in this room is just so good. And I think what that's going to lead to is, is beautiful growth in other people's lives, right? I really, really believe that. So I desire so badly for depth in our relationships with one another, depth that leads to life change, right? And so you can sign up for discipleship groups now. Uh, we have a few questions for you to answer in the sign-up just so I can, we can be intentional about who you're with and things like that. But you can find the form 
the discipleship form on our QR codes. I sent out an email blast on Friday night that you can, um, f- you can get it on there. Or you can talk to me, Tiana, Chris, Girlding, whoever. Um, if you want more information, we can get that to you. Okay? And then the second pathway I do want to highlight, we've already talked about this morning, um, but it's formation courses. Right? And so after a hiatus this summer, we are relaunching our formation courses. So if you don't know, formation courses are um, they're topic-driven studies. So sometimes we'll go into a book of the Bible. It'd be like First Samuel, um, Genesis, things like that. Or it's a topical study, like uh, Politics of Jesus we've done in the past. This fall, Tayun is going to be leading us in a study on uh, exegetical work, the exegetical work of the Bible. In other words, how do we understand and apply the Bible more directly in our lives, right? Um, and so we're meeting Tuesday 7 to 8.30. It's just an eight-week commitment to be like, hey, I'm just going to spend eight intentional week, weeks with other people who want to do this work and really grow in our relationship with God. I really think that this is the, the teaching aspect of the Great Commission, right? So that's what we have this fall, and I, honestly, I'm just so excited. I just think we have really, really significant opportunity to grow in our relationships with each other and God this fall. Um, So this is how I want to end. I am really pumped, but I recognize that one major concern people have for entering into a little bit more of an intentional discipleship relationship or entering into making disciples is this sort of what do I bring to the table attitude, right? In other words, I don't feel worthy to be a part of discipleship. I'm too broken. People might reject me when they get to know me right? So to address that, I want to look at two things that come with the Great Commission, uh, and then I'm in my seat. The first is Jesus' opener of, of this uh, passage. It says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, you, people who are broken, go, right? You see, if we were getting in line for who was most worthy to enter in, to like do discipleship, I promise you I would be in the back of the line, Right? There's just a reality that I have a, a very broken past. I'm a broken person, right? I remember uh, when I was asked to go back into working in college ministry in 2015, I was just like, what do I bring to the table? It's like, I'll do it. Like, I like meeting people, so it, it does sound fun to me, but I don't know if I'm going to be any good at this. Um, and yet, when I would meet guys, I would open up about this broken past, and it would resonate so deeply with them that we were we would grow in relationship with each other and we're able to point each other to Jesus so strongly, right? And this says nothing about me, right? It is all the ways in which God uses us. Let me show you one night in particular. Um, So there's this guy, um, I'll call him Hank. Hank, uh, I had worked with him for a couple of years. I don't know why he kept agreeing to meet with me because he didn't seem to like really enjoy it, but he did. So I kept meeting with him. No life change in a couple of years of meeting with him. And then one night, it's 3 a.m., and Hank calls me. Now, Hank is someone who is very cognizant of other people and how they're doing. And so I know Hank's not going to call me at 3 a.m. if he doesn't need to call me at 3 a.m. So I'm like, fine, I'm going to answer. And so I answer, and Hank is, of course, so- not of course, but Hank is sobbing. Um, and he starts to share with me, like, um, that his girlfriend at the time found out that he had lied about his sexual history, Right? and that uh, it was a pretty severe lie, and she felt really betrayed, and she broke up with him. Now, Hank being 21, this was, of course, the worst thing that had ever happened to him, right? And despite sort of the, um, regardless of how deep it was or not, 
Hank felt lost and he felt crushed. But most importantly, he felt guilty and shame, right? Because he had experienced the consequence of his own sin. And so I just listened to Hank talk to me for hours, talk about everything. And then I just affirmed that I loved him, that God loved him, and that we would meet tomorrow, right? And so then we did, and we started to meet more regularly. Um, And let me tell you this, I did nothing special. I just listened to him, and I got to know him. And all of a sudden, it was just like his life was changing dramatically in front of our eyes. See, if we stay quiet, if we don't participate in discipleship, Jesus says even the very stones will cry out, right? God does not need us, but God's plan A is people, right? He, he wants to use people to help other people get to know Jesus, right? Broken people to reach broken people. He has given us that authority. And the second and final point here in Matthew 28 is found at the end. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age, right? You guys already know what I'm going with this, but I'm going to do it. Do you guys remember at the burning bush when Moses is called and he's, God is like, Moses, I need you to go liberate the people, right? What does Moses say? He says, man, I can't speak good, right? He said, I can't do it. Like, I can't do it. And what does God say? God is like, yeah, you can't. No, he doesn't say that, right? God says, I am with you, right? We get to um, the people about to enter the promised land with Joshua, right? What does God say? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God is with you, right? Y'all get the point, but I'm going to keep going. Gideon, Judges 6, right? Uh, God comes to Gideon and says, hey, I need you to rescue the Israelites from the, uh, the people of Midian. What was Gideon's response? Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least of my father's house. God, I am nothing. I bring nothing to the table. What was God's response? I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man, right? Jeremiah, God, I am too young to prophesy. God, I will be with you, right? You guys see the point. In every situation where God calls someone to do something, and they recognize their weakness and their inability to do it, God's response is the same every single time. I will be with you. And so it makes sense that when Jesus is leaving his disciples, when they're scared, when they're unsure of what to do, and that Jesus commissions to make for them to make disciples, he reminds them of this. I am with you always to the end of the age, right? We may think we are not worthy to be disciples. We may think we are not worthy to make disciples, but Jesus' presence empowers us to be and to make disciples, right? Thank you for listening to the Missio Day Uptown Podcast. We are a church committed to our neighborhood, seeking to love and serve our beautifully unique community as we join God as he makes all things new. To learn more about us, visit mduptown.com.